Good morning. I'm Chad Bowen, and I'm the pastor at Moore Memorial United Methodist Church in downtown Winona. Our church seeks to be God's children, sharing the love of Christ through study, worship, and service. And we are really excited about the ways that God is at work in our community, in us and through us, and the ways that we are finding to serve God and to serve our neighbor uh, through service to the community. If you'd like to join us in person for worship, we're worshiping at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock currently in our Family Life Center because it's a little bit easier to keep sanitized. Uh, But we hope to be returning to our sanctuary sometime soon. So we pray that uh, this service is a blessing to you, and uh, we pray that God speaks to you through the proclamation of His Word today. Let's pray. Eternal Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have brought us here today. We thank you for the technology that lets us hear and spread the good news of your gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would open us to your word, to your word that is unchanging, that is inspired by the power of your Holy Spirit. We know that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but that your word stands forever. We know that all flesh is like grass, that we will all one day die apart from uh, your return. And we pray, Lord, that we could live our lives in light of this truth, not in despair over our deaths, but in the fullness of hope that we will be united with Christ in all of his glory and honor and praise. We pray, Lord, that you would begin to prepare us for that and for the mission that you have set before us in this world as we hear your word today. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 8. We will read verses 11 through 15. Hear this word. For the Lord spoke thus to me, while his hand was strong upon me and warned me not to walk in the ways of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what it fears, or be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary, a stone one strikes against. For both houses of Israel, he will become a rock one stumbles over, a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. Hear this word. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered... For sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. 
he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Yesterday afternoon, as it began to get dark, the power went off. And I wonder if when it was finally dark, if you were prepared, if you were ready. Did you have your candles and your flashlights ready to go? Did you have your lighters and matches ready to light your candles? Were you ready for it to be a little bit warm in your house? Did you have some windows that you could open when the air conditioner wasn't on? Were you ready for the power to go out? Are you always ready for that? And I wonder if the second time that the power went out, if you were a little bit more ready or if you'd put everything back in the same way. I bet by the tenth time you were well prepared for the power to be coming on and off. And I wonder what your level of preparation is for the command that Peter offers us today The command to always be ready to offer an account, a defense of the hope that is in us. I wonder if you're living your life in such a way that anybody might bother to ask about the hope that is in you or the hope that is in me. Peter himself has had a long journey uh, in this process himself. Uh, In Luke 12, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter responds that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And right away, right after that, after he gets that question right, because God himself revealed it to Peter, right after that, Jesus begins to talk about what it will be for him to be the Messiah. That he will suffer, that he'll be arrested, that he'll be betrayed, that he will die, and that he'll be raised on the third day. When Peter begins to hear this, he tells Jesus to stop talking that way. That doesn't make any sense. That's not what's supposed to happen with the Messiah who is good and powerful and will not suffer like that. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter is so far off base from the same mouth that proclaimed him as Messiah, Peter now is not ready to give an account. Likewise, in Luke 22, as Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed, as he knows that he's going to be arrested, as he tells the disciples a little bit about what's coming and that they are all going to abandon him too, Peter says, not me. Not me, Jesus. I will never abandon you. I will follow you all the way to death. And Jesus says, surely I tell you before the cock crows three times, before night is over, before the morning has fully broken, you will have denied me three times. Before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. And Peter can't believe it until the cock crows the next morning. And it's true, he has denied ever knowing Jesus or walking with him. Peter was not ready to give an account for the hope that was in him. But by the time we get to Acts 2, when Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday, on Pentecost Day, he is ready. 
and he preaches and 3,000 people are saved. And he and Peter, I mean, he and John go into the temple the next day or sometime soon and they heal a man who has been lame from the time he was uh, born. And that man leaps around the temple and everyone notices that he's the man who's always been lame and they start asking questions. And Peter is ready to preach again in the name of Jesus to tell them that resurrection power is available to them by the power of the Holy Spirit. More people are baptized and Peter and John are thrown into jail because the same people that wanted to stop Jesus are now seeking to stop Peter and John. And when Peter and John get out of jail and they get to go back to the community, they don't pray for vengeance over the people that have thrown them into jail. They pray for boldness. They pray that they can be ready in a moment's notice to continue to speak about the hope that is in them. Yesterday we celebrated the 4th of July, this grand celebration of independence and freedom and liberty And whether or not you got to read it in the paper this week, I talked a little bit about what it looks like for a Christian to be free. Freedom for a Christian is not the freedom to do what I want, even though we're inclined to define it that way culturally, that I live in a free country, I can do what I want. That's not what it means to be free according to the gospel. The gospel calling us free does not mean that we get to avoid everything that we don't like. It doesn't mean that we get to stray away from any inconvenience so that we don't have to be, uh, we don't have to experience that. It's not freedom to do whatever we want. The freedom of the gospel is freedom from the power of sin and death over us in our lives so that we can live in righteousness towards God. So that we can be holy as God himself is holy. So that we can be freed to love others in as much as we used to love ourselves and seek to serve ourselves. We are freed not to serve ourselves, but to serve others and the Lord. No longer bound by the power of sin and death. The freedom of a Christian is the freedom to live in righteousness. Peter's already called us to that, calling us to be holy as God is holy, reminding us not to get pulled back into the former desires of our flesh. And now he says it in a really interesting way. He says, who will harm you if you become zealots for the good? Zealots were always a threat to the state. They were leading rebellions. They were putting together bands and militias so that they could try to overthrow the the sense of the world that they thought was unrighteous. But what if you took all of the zeal that a zealot has and used it in community to pursue that which is good and holy and righteous all the time, in every station, what if you worked that hard to pursue the good? Surely if you were that good, you would never suffer, right? Because if you're suffering, it must be because you did something wrong. At least that's the logic that we follow, but it's not the logic of Jesus. In the Beatitudes, the last couple of times that Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and on and on he goes. The last two in Matthew chapter 5 are this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In some sense, all of 1 Peter could be seen as a commentary on this verse. All the prophets who came before you were treated this way. Jesus himself is treated this way. Don't be surprised if you suffer for doing good. This is where Peter draws back in what he's already alluded to in Isaiah chapter 8. You may remember that at the beginning of chapter 2 in 1 Peter, Peter has said that the church is a temple built of living stones with Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, serving as the foundation for all the other stones to be laid, and that we are being built into a spiritual house, that we are becoming a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race. Peter draws us back into that same passage in Isaiah 8 this time, but a little bit before he doesn't pick up by saying, don't, don't believe everything is a conspiracy when other people say it is. But he does say, do not fear what they fear. And do not be intimidated, but sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts. As the rest of the world is fearful about what the world can do to us, you should not be intimidated. Instead, you should have your attention so firmly set on God. And you should know God's character so thoroughly as the one who judges all people impartially and as the one who sent his son to die for your sins that you can set the holiness of God in your hearts. Peter quotes this passage from Isaiah 8 almost verbatim, except that he adds one word. Just after he says... Sanctify the Lord, he says, Christ in your hearts. He is setting Jesus, the human who was born of Mary, on the same plane as the God who led Israel out of Egypt, the God who made the world by the speech of his mouth. And in doing this, Peter draws us back into everything that he's already said about Jesus and about the church. Peter is saying, you can be free of fear because Jesus has been raised from the dead and your hope is in him. You can sanctify God in your heart because Jesus did that even as he was crucified. And you can do this together because God is piecing you together into the temple that he promised where Jesus is the cornerstone. Where he's not the stone that you are tripping over, you Christians in Asia Minor. Even though the Jewish folks who should have gotten it missed it in Jerusalem and Judah. All the 12 tribes of Israel, many of them missed it, not all of them. Peter himself is from those tribes. But many of them missed it. But Jesus for you is not a stumbling block. He is the chief cornerstone on which God is putting the temple together. So what do we do if we're being pieced together into a spiritual house? If God, is, if God is making us holy as he himself is holy, if we're clinging to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, and yet we have to exist in a world where the culture doesn't align with our calling as Christians. 
What do we do when the world's priorities don't align with our priorities? What do we do if we suffer for doing good? Is that even possible? Peter's already given us examples of this, of what it looks like to be a slave, not just under any kind of master, which is its own kind of injustice, but especially under a harsh master. What does it look like to live under the emperor and honor the emperor? What does it look like to live in a marriage, maybe where the partner, the spouse, is not a Christian? What happens when we live in a world that does not align with how we have been called to live? And we're often inclined to one of two things. The first is to withdraw. The most extreme example of this would be the most conservative Amish who have removed themselves from the world, who have removed themselves from technology, who live simple lives in community with one another and really limit their interaction with the rest of the world. You don't have to be Amish to live into this. There are other ways that we do it every day by listening only to Christian music or talking only to Christian people or only engaging with people who agree with us on social media or in conversation, creating our own kinds of silos and echo chambers. We isolate ourselves so that we can live in a different kind of culture than the rest of the world so that we can control our environment. That's one option, to withdraw. And the other option is a hostile counterattack where we try to use the mechanisms of power in this world to change the world to look more like what we think a Christian version of it would look like. This is what has led us into the culture wars. It's what powered the moral majority movement early and now things like the family, the group that is behind the National Prayer Breakfast, as they seek to take the institutions of power and convert them into something for good. And without fail, as far as I know, these kinds of movements get caught in a tug of war trying to co-opt existing systems so that they can leverage those systems to make a better world But over and over and over again in those systems, we get chewed out, chewed up, and spit out. And it turns out that even the best of us are no better at leveraging those systems for good than others. In either case, we get the focus backwards. In both cases, we try to make the world, either by setting boundaries around our world so that we can control it, or by trying to control the whole world, We try to make culture align with what we think God says it should look like. The difference is only a matter of scale. Can we try to get everybody involved or can we limit the boundaries of the community so that we can build a Christian culture? But the calling of Scripture, the calling of 1 Peter, is to provide an alternative witness in the world as it already exists. One theologian says it this way. That cultural isolation is not the route to be taken by the Christian community. Instead, we are to live life openly in the midst of the unbelieving world and just as openly be prepared to explain the reasons for it. Peter is calling us to live like we have hope in a different world, even in the midst of the brokenness of this one. Our reward, our inheritance is not in this world, but God's salvation is already working itself out in us. This is the outcome of our faith in the present right now, and God has been doing it through the generations, through his prophets, 
and through his oversight of his people Israel and through his faithfulness to the patriarchs and even to Adam and Eve. The call Peter offers us now is to be in the world, but not of it. The call is to find our way to be faithful, even if it comes at great cost. If you find a way to be a zealot for the good, if you can pursue the good, the righteous, the holy, in a single-minded fashion as it is defined by God and no one else, If you can do that radically in community where you do not return abuse for abuse, but instead return abuse for blessing, you offer a blessing when others abuse you, someone is going to ask you what the deal is. If you start living in that way, and we need to be ready always to give an account, we need to be ready. And this readiness is not only an intellectual knowledge ready to know what it is that we're supposed to stay. This readiness means that if anybody peeks in on our lives at any time, our lives are testifying consistently to the same thing, that we have hope in Jesus Christ that makes us different and that makes us not assume that the way that the world works is exactly how it should work. This is what we assume most of the time. We think that if we do good things, we'll get good things, we'll get rewards, and we think if we do bad things, we'll get punished. These are the basic premises of raising pets or children. You offer them the carrot when they do good things, you offer them the stick when they do not. That's how we discipline, and it's also how we evaluate the world. When we look around at the world and we see someone who's hard on their luck, we're inclined to say, wonder what they did to find themselves in that situation. This is the basic thesis of karma that is the undercurrent of justice in our world, that everyone gets what's coming to them. And we can see that in a future sense, that if you do something bad, something bad is going to come around and bite you. If you do something good, you've put good vibes into the world that will come back. But we can also do it retrospectively and say, well, if bad things are coming your way, you must have done something to deserve it. What you've got now is what you've had coming. And something like the pandemic throws all of this in for a loop because we know that there are people who have worked hard every day and have still been furloughed. We know that there are people who have lost their income despite not doing anything wrong. We know that there are people who have gotten ill because they have offered themselves in care to others. They've done good, and they've suffered for it. Peter calls us to entertain this as an option. What if we do everything right and still we suffer? What if we work hard every day all of our lives and still get furloughed because of a virus beyond our control? What if we wear our mask and keep our distance and avoid large gatherings and wash our hands and still somehow we get the virus? What if we suffer not only despite doing the right thing, but because of it? What if we suffer because we have become zealots of the good in our attempt to follow Jesus. 
In Christianese, this sounds like maybe it's kind of simple, but the truth is that everything in our world presses back against this. Uh, many, many years ago now, there was a movie that came out called Double Jeopardy about a woman that was convicted of a crime she did not commit. And she spent all of her time in jail until she was released, figuring out how she could commit that crime. Because she'd already paid the penalty for it, she couldn't be tried for it again, so she might as well commit the murder that she'd already served the time for. The stakes aren't always that high, but it's really easy to fall into this trap. To say, well, if I'm going to suffer anyway and be falsely accused, I might as well enjoy the things that I'm falsely accused of. There's a country music song out right now that goes, there's a rumor going around about me and you. And there's some more lines. And then it says, why don't we make it true? If people are already talking about us and assuming that we have an inappropriate relationship, why don't we just do it? We're already bearing the social cost of it. We might as well enjoy it. If we're going to suffer for not doing it, we might as well suffer for doing it if that's what we want. Peter says it's better to suffer for doing good than for evil. In other words, even if things are unjust for us, we're called to see this with the eyes of God and not look at our suffering but to look with the judgment of God on our lives and to see whether we're following our own inclinations or desires or whether we have submitted our desires to His Word that is unchanging, that is steadfast, that never withers or falls but stands forever. Why would we do that? How can we do that? Why would we live in such a way as to suffer for doing good? There's only one answer that makes any sense. And that answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus who suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you and me to God. He was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. He even went to hell to proclaim the message of his victory so that people could hear it there and be released. It's not something we talk about a whole lot in the Methodist church, but the harrowing of hell is a beautiful theological concept rooted here in 1 Peter 3. We can live this way and know that it is true because Jesus has done it. Jesus did everything right. He was righteous and yet he suffered for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. And that's what Peter is calling us to do too. To be always ready for our lives and our words. To be a testimony to others. To live our lives in readiness to give an account for the hope that is in us. Peter knows that he wasn't always ready. And maybe you aren't either. But that's what he's calling you to do. To be ready. To be spiritually prepared to speak about the hope that is within you that sustains you through whatever comes your way. This doesn't mean that you have to be ready to give a perfectly orthodox 
theological exposition of the Trinity. It doesn't mean that you have to be ready to, ex- be, to explain how Jesus can be both fully God and fully man. It doesn't mean that you have to have a nuanced understanding of scriptural hermeneutic traditions and options. What it means is that the grace of God at work in you should free you up to live differently in the world where it is painful, but not the worst thing to suffer for doing good. Because you are living your life to please God regardless of what comes your way. And as you seek to do that, other people are going to take notice. And you say, why do you live this way? Why, when you are abused, do you return it with a blessing? Why, when you could live on your own, separate from others, are you living in community? Why do you live the way that you do? And you don't have to have some beautiful, perfect theological answer. You just need to be able to say, Jesus. Jesus, the righteous man, suffered for me and for you, the ungodly, suffering for our sins once for all in order to bring us to God. And because I've been brought to God, I am being made like Jesus, and my life too is taking me to all kinds of unexpected places so that I can proclaim the good news of his victory. That's it. Are you ready to give an account? Are you ready not only with your words, but in your life? If someone peeks in on your life at any moment, are you ready in your actions and with your words to give an account for the hope that is in you? May it be so among us today.